You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volts, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volts. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today, my guest is Erica Gates of Gates Preservation. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Well, I am currently a preservation consultant. I specialize in permitting and regulatory compliance uh, with historic districts. So I was Born in Lake Charles, I've lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Springfield, Missouri, and then most recently in Austin, Texas. And then I came back here. I've family. I've had family here for for a long time, but I came. I feel like, so. I feel like I came back to New Orleans, although I never had uh, lived here prior. But I came back about ten years ago to do the uh, to do the two lane MPS program. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was what really started and uh, started that. So I and coming off of that, I kind of pulled my, my some of my, my family members. So now my sister and my brother in law are here, as well as my parents. And, and of course, my husband, he who uh, was born and raised in Austin. And now he's kind of found his found a new home here in New Orleans. I've, I've pulled him in because he's actually a uh, a preparator at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Oh, okay. So he's uh, very similar, overlapping professions. Uh, we have, you know, a lot of the same people in our in our universe, kind of professionally. And so he's got uh, got some really kind of important things that the uh, collection does that crosses over with the VCC, the VPRA Commission. And so we have a lot a lot to talk about, I think, in our in our perspective yeah. <laughs> uh, professions. But our professions also really kind of leak heavily into our hobbies. We are both big collectors. Uh, we've been doing estate sales since we were dating, and so we collect all myriad of things. He collects uh, fountain pens and typewriters and mailboxes, as well as rotary phones. Okay. We have two phone booths in our house. Wow. <laughs> which is a, something not a lot of people can say. And so, and then I collect a lot of uh, uh, various vintage items and architectural salvage and things like that. And so we had our house was actually on the Weird Homes tour last year. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and then we've uh, so there are some great pictures floating around uh, on my on my social media and, and on the internet of, of our house uh, as well. And PRC then asked us to be on this year's holiday home tour. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of prepping for that. Cool, <laughs> that's exciting. So that's a lot of our hobbies as far as you know. We do a lot of furniture restoration and pro- and kind of display of all our all of our collections a lot of people call our house the museum mm-hmm. so it kind of it's taking work home with us in many ways but so I yeah so along with being a preservationist I'm I'm a wife and a mother of a of a nearly two-year-old okay two little boy Henry he'll be two in um in May so he's a he is a lot of the reason that I, I opted to leave the city work and go into into preservation but we'll talk about that we're going to excuse me going into consulting but we'll talk a little bit more about that later I think Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let, let's go back to your education because you mm-hmm. mentioned that you, you have the MPS from Tulane, which is the same thing that I have. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you may have been at like the year after I was, maybe. Maybe. I was actually about, I was a little bit after Danielle DeSalle. So it was uh, 2010 to 2012. Okay. Yeah. So I think I finished... And then you came right in, Mm -hmm. in the fall, because that would have been when I was finishing up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, but then you have also, you have a bachelor's, just a bachelor's in architecture. When you started with the architecture as your undergrad, did you choose that knowing that you do preservation later or were you just 
really liked architecture or? Well, yes and no. I think historic architecture is really what brought me to um, architecture school. I think at the time there wasn't really a big understanding or a big attention on preservation at the collegiate level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I, you know, when I was high school in high school, my parents and I just thought you went to architecture school and then you just did historic buildings. So that was our whole plan. I think the whole plan at the time. Um, I think I really didn't do more research and kind of understand that path as an edu- as an educational uh, source until probably my fourth year in grad in uh, architecture school. So kind of my uh, junior year, I guess, for, for architecture students, because that's, you know, a five year program. So really not until our, my fourth year did I really kind of think of this as maybe something I should do as mm-hmm. the next step. Because if you've been in architecture school, then you, you you know, may have a better understanding of kind of the amount of uh, architectural history and building methods that they teach is really just shameful. It's There's a, a big void, I, I feel, and a lot of other preservationists who have been in architecture school kind of share that feeling, that they really don't focus on historic architecture, styles, and then, of course, even historic building methods as well. So, like, you know, they don't really feel like you give a good foundation for what they then teach you going forward in architecture, because, of course, their focus is on new architecture. Um, So unless you are going into a preservation program or, of course, you know, maybe getting a job uh, as an intern with a preservation-minded architect, um, you're really not ready right out out of architecture school to work in preservation and kind of, you know, really know what you're doing. So you either really have to come by it through through the profession or through a master's uh, program. So I graduated my um, undergrad program in 2008. So jobs were not really uh, readily available at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so kind of uh, hiding in a uh, graduate program at that time really seemed, seemed like a good option. Kind of maybe hide out for a few more years uh, and see if the uh, job market gets better. So that was really kind of the, my logic in pursuing a master's program was really just kind of, you know, stay afloat until the job market got better. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I thought, too. And then when I came out, it didn't it wasn't really any better wasn't a whole lot better no. <laughs> yeah not, not here anyway because no. that was right around when they got rid of the the program that I literally just talked about with somebody a couple weeks ago with the one that they were doing here after Katrina and Rita when they were doing the grants to historic homeowners and historic districts here and that around 2010 2011 was when that program ended and Mm -hmm. like 35 people didn't have a job anymore and it was like right around the same Mm -hmm. time that you know i was coming out of school and like a bunch of my friends were coming out and it was like "Uh what do we do now so yeah i understand that (laughs) Mm -hmm. so after that you you worked as a historic tax credit consultant which we've talked about before on the podcast mm-hmm. um, a little bit with different people. But just in case somebody new is listening to this one that maybe hasn't listened to a previous episode, can you um, just give us a brief overview of what the historic tax credits are and how they work? Um, yeah. And of course, yeah, you've had some great people on talking about tax credit programs before. So if anyone wants to know real good details, refer to, I think, Kelly and I think both Ashley gave Kelly great, and Ashley, yeah. gave great examples from theirs that I listened to. And uh, so basically, I'm going to kind of explain it badly, but <laughs> tax credit, uh, tax programs kind of encourage private investors to uh, take on historic buildings at, with the intent of rehabilitating them and reusing them uh, with the benefit of kind of providing possible federal and state tax credits for a percentage of the eligible improvements on the building. 
Um, so all of those, of course, have to, uh, when you're going through the process, you have to meet the Secretary of Interior standards that are set, by, set forth by the Park Service in order to kind of, in order to then cash in on those uh, federal and state tax credits at the end of your renovation. So you kind of have to put, put up the money uh, first, but then you'll be getting a lot of tax credits back at the end if you follow the, uh, the, the process. One of the great benefits that is also great for schools and nonprofits is there's a very viable system of selling tax credits. One of the great benefits that I've seen in the tax credit work that I've done is that it's been great for some nonprofits. Schools, churches have taken advantage of these tax credits and then have been able to sell those credits to other businesses, usually somewhere in the 80 cents to a dollar benefit, kind of depending on the market. So I've been kind of active in a lot of a lot of the tax cuts that I did involve Catholic church buildings. So they used it uh, quite a bit in various locations to kind of gain back that benefit by selling the tax credits. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so just for reference for who's listening, in, in Louisiana we do have we have national and state credits, mm-hmm. but right now those are only for non-residential buildings. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And there are a lot of ways that people kind of set up their situations if it is a residential building obviously as long as they can set it up as a rental income situation and that's fairly easy to do they can take advantage of of those tax credits yes. yeah yeah okay so when you when you were doing this work as a tax credit consultant were you working for yourself or were you working for a company uh well really it was for myself i kind of stumbled into the historic tax credit credit consulting um when i was in grad school so i actually my brother-in-law's sister, I think is the correct way to say that, is a real estate attorney here in town, Kelly Longwell. And so she kind of, when I got here to, to New Orleans, she kind of said, oh, great. This is, you know, something that you're interested in. You can do some of this research for me. And of course, I come much cheaper than your average lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it helped a lot for her clients to kind of come to me and uh, to do all the paperwork. Okay. So I wasn't very involved uh, at that time with you know, how tax credits were sold or how the process happens or the, you know, the accounting side, I pretty much did the research and the write-ups and the kind of, you know, site plans with pictures and all that and set that all up in a, in a bundle for them that, and then send it to, send it to the state. So that was kind of, I was kind of in a um, small section, I think really of the work that is, is involved in the tax credit program. But it was really great for me at the time, of course, because I was in grad school. I'd really kind of just started the you know, first couple months, and she, she kind of presents this to me. So it really gave me the opportunity to, to find the research, research where, where you research in New Orleans, where the histo- historic information is, because, of course, you're going to have to do quite a bit of historic research mm-hmm. on each property that you encounter. And so where in New Orleans do you go for that? We hadn't even gotten to that kind of stuff right. in the master's <laughs> program yet. So I had the opportunity, of course, of being able to ask some of my professors kind of ahead of time and getting started on that. But it was really kind of, you know, hit the hit the ground running in some actual preservation work while I was still in grad school. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds good. Like, I, I hear stories from people that are able to make connections with you know, people that they've met in their neighborhood or people from their church mm-hmm. that, that are like, hey, you know, so-and-so that I know has got this project coming and let me throw you some some work your way. Mm-hmm. And I always love hearing those stories because it, it just kind of proves that like just being out there and letting people know that this is what you do, those kind of things can come to you yes. even when you're not like looking for that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's pretty cool. And so when you finished school, did you continue doing that? I did for about a year, year, uh, year to two years after that, kind of 
more part-time did I work on I worked on tax credits as um, I was kind of looking for other options and and like we said you know even in 2012 the the job market wasn't spectacular so yeah I I kind of you know was looking for uh, several options while still kind of doing that on the side Mm -hmm. okay so after that you worked as a building inspector from 2015 to 2018 mm-hmm. with the VCC, which is the Vucare Commission. They are basically like the, I, I always want to call them like the governing body. I that's guess. usually like, what we, that's usually yeah. the term we use is governing body. Yes. Yeah. Of the French Quarter here that the, you know, the, the Vucare is, that's the term for the French Quarter, mm-hmm. if, if you want to say it that way, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it means old city. Old city. Yeah. Okay. So it's just, you know, because that is the original city as it, as it was plotted out in 1718, the reference was at the time, of course, that's the, oh, that's the old city. Mm-hmm. So that's where that term really comes about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's got that interesting French spelling with the little thing on it. Ah, yes. <laughs> that I can't ever... It's, it's not, not an, an umlaut. A, it's, it's not an umlaut. It's not an asterisk. <laughs> like, it's that little, little, a little thing. A little, little check yeah. mark above it. little, <laughs> yes. Uh, which usually doesn't get used. Usually that gets dropped most yeah, of the time, just I, for practicality reasons. I would if I could figure out how to do it on my... When I type it up, but I can't figure out how to do it, so I'll just yeah. leave it. One of the former plans <laughs> examiners who was there when I, when I when I started like taught me how to do it once, and I probably forgot, and she left shortly thereafter. And I don't think anybody ever used it after that. Yeah, <laughs> just try how to drop it when it comes to typing. Yeah. Can you talk? Like, can you tell us exactly what the VCC is, and and how they operate and what they do in the French Quarter? So view Greg really being the, the term for French Quarter. French Quarter is what we generally call uh, call it in, you know, colloquially around here. But, of course, it referenced the oldest neighborhood here in, in New Orleans. And uh, I usually kind of refer to it as the governing body, which protects the tout ensemble of the French Quarter. And tout, tout ensemble, and it, it is, it's kind of its, its own uh, fabulous preservation-y word. It is really, this word was almost created for the purpose of defining what the, the View Cray Commission is. So they define themselves by making up a word. Uh, <laughs> That's a course, barely New Orleans thing It's such a New Orleans do. thing to do. Um, but this is all happening uh, in the 1920s. So this is really one of the first preservation entities really even in, in the United States started as a advisory council in the ni- in 1925 and then became a city agency with regulatory power in 1937 so it is one of the first historic districts in in the country i believe it's second and that maybe charleston is first but don't quote me on that uh it's something like that it is second considering that it just didn't become a regulatory agency until 1937 so there's a little bit of an argument on whether or not it was first or second okay <laughs> <laughs> just if you want to get real picky but so tout ensemble is a really interesting word and basically means the atmosphere, the general feeling of a place. And this was a very out there concept to kind of define a, a preservation as a neighborhood and the importance of the overall feeling of the neighborhood. At the time, preservation was very focused on single buildings of historic significance and that whole concept of national register places single mm-hmm. buildings so the idea that we should really be focusing on entire districts um, as important historic elements and that everything in that district is contributing in some form or fashion was really a very new concept so they mm-hmm. had to make up their own word really i think to explain yeah. what they were trying to get at and so this is why the vcc is somewhat unique and it's uh, in how it also controls the buildings in the french quarter 
So many historic districts, uh, HDLC, Historic District Landmarks Commission, districts are included in this in that they generally control what you can see from the street. Mm-hmm. Kind of the front facades, maybe the side facade. They really don't have a lot of um, control, of course, on rears or even roofs or anything like that. And But in the French Quarter, it's a very different animal. By definition, the VCC controls everything the outside air touches. Okay. So that's kind of a very romantic description in itself. (laughs) (laughs) Everything the outside air touches. Well, the very important element of that, of course, is something that is very minimally visible, but very important to the French Quarter. And its its general feeling, of course, is the courtyards. Mm -hmm. So courtyards and roofscapes especially are something that the French and the Spanish both uh, really kind of made special places in their buildings. And so even though we can't see them from the street, they take a very important place in kind of how we preserve uh, the history of the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. So that's why that outside air idea comes in place, because of course they control roofscapes, materials on roofs, co- anything on the in the courtyard, as well as, you know, open air staircases, even though they are actually covered by the structure themselves, they're still considered open air and they control those as well. So okay. it's kind of something a lot of people don't know about what the VCC controls. Not interiors, but everything the outside air touches. So there's a lot of kind of debate about what that means sometimes as well. Right. So I guess my, my question would be, for example, you want to put a pool in your courtyard. Mm-hmm. You would have to go through them to get approval for a pool and also City Hall or... I know that's kind of a specific question. I just uh-huh. see so many, even oh, yeah. even little tiny pools, you know, in people's people's courtyards. Like how, I'm just curious, like how that works. So the application process basically starts with either an online application or an in-person application. They do still accept in-person applications for those that are, you know, computer inept but mm-hmm. um so it goes it starts with an application and so if you want to if you want to put in an application for a pool you go to the website you you know tell them what you want to do basically uh, in the application include addresses and very and various information the, the website kind of goes through prompts so it'll it kind of prompt you to fill in this information and then continue to the next page so once that application is received by the city, it actually goes to zoning first. Okay. Uh, so zoning looks at it specifically to do, to note which departments it needs to, to go to. So it's going to look at, of course, where the building is, what you're asking to do. Once they, once they have looked at it, they're going to create a master permit, which is a permit with safety and permits. And typically, if it, of course it's in the French Quarter, a sub-permit with VCC. Okay. So there's a, oftentimes that terminology is used in the city where we talk about a master permit and a sub-permit. Those are usually two conjoined permits that go along with any historic district. So even if you are in, the, in an HDLC, HDLC district, uh, you will also have um, a kind of a conjoined master and sub-permit. Though HDLC actually calls their permits certificates of appropriateness. Right. So or a lot, of refer to, a lot of those COAs. <laughs> a lot of people refer to them as yes, the COA, CFA. So it's a little bit of a of a of a sore spot also with the VCC because theirs are technically permits and HDLCs are technically not. But okay. so a lot of people get you know VCC people get offended if you don't call theirs you know if you call it a CFA because it's a permit mm-hmm. and that all goes back to the um, how it's written in the state charter. Okay. So an application is made, sub-permit is created for VCC, and these two permits, the master permit and the sub-permit, um, share a, a number. So they have kind of a number that connects the two. And this all goes into a system, a software system that the city uses called LAMA, L-A-M-A, okay. Land Management. 
Uh, so this is another uh, GIS-based software. Okay. So we talked a little, well, you know, you talked about that previously. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where, you know, a fine example of, a, of, of a, a software that was actually created for the city of New Orleans. Okay. Um, specifically to serve this need. Uh, so one of the great benefits of this software is it has a, it's very flexible. If you can, if you know how to manipulate it, it can do a lot of wonderful things for you. Uh, one maybe the downsides of the software is that you really kind of know have to know how to manipulate it, and the city is not the best, not to insult them, but the city is not the best at training people. Oh, they kind okay. of expect you to figure it out. Okay. <laughs> so there are a lot of people whose daily jobs kind of uh, exist on this Llama software, and they may or may not be using it to its full potential. So that can have some some uh, side effects. But the idea with the, with Llama is that it kind of unites all of these departments. And, of course, the one-stop, as it's often referred to. So the, the uh, VCC actually had an office from 1937 until about 2013 in the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. And so they were called, kind of called home to City Hall in, in 2013 so that they be- can become part of the one-stop. Okay. And the idea there is that you have your one-stop shop for everything that you might possibly need in permitting and licensing, which was a great idea in theory. Mm-hmm. In practice, it's it's still in process. Even, you know, six years later, there, there are still many, many great kinks uh, that need to be worked out. In the one-stop, of course, you have safety and permits, uh, VCC, HDLC, city planning, as well as taxi cab and short-term rental. Okay. So there are a lot of a lot of entities uh, that make up the seventh floor of City Hall. <laughs> About 90 pe- 90% of the people who walk into City Hall are probably going to the seventh floor because mm-hmm. that's that's pretty much everything. But so when you get a permit that goes to VCC, so it's made it's been kind of uh, gone through the zoning process, safety and permits has checked it, it shows up in the VCC's mailbox so they know that it's there. And, and they'll go through the application. If there's any attachments made, drawings or pictures or anything like that that are attached to the application, they'll take a look at that. And plans and the plans reviewers will decide if it needs to if it's something that's basic and simple. So for example, if they're doing if you're doing painting or doing some minor renovation work on the exterior, if you're just kind of repairing to match existing general maintenance stuff, that's usually what they call staff approvable. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are usually pretty easy permits. They can kind of turn those around in a couple of days. They'll write a permit. They'll print it out. All of this goes through the Llama system. So it's all generated by Llama and creates this permit, prints it out. That that permit then uh, goes to the director's desk, Brian okay. Block. Mm-hmm. So he takes a look at it. He signs it. And it is a valid permit. So at that point, the plans examiner will send an email or, give a, or, or make a call and tell the applicant that their permit is ready. Now, because of the way the VCC is set up, that means you have to go over to City Hall, physically go up to the seventh floor, sign that permit, and and they will put it on a placard, a little colored background that you can then mount on your building. Mm-hmm. So in a window or on the building, wherever wherever it is that it can be seen from the street so that the inspector can see it. And that's what makes a actual valid permit within the VCC. Again, that goes back to when the VCC was created many, many eons ago before we had internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every other permit pretty much uh, within the one stop can be printed offline. Okay. So you can print it off from, from an online source. Mm-hmm. But VCC, you still have to go up to City Hall and sign for it. Hmm. So it's kind of an archaic method that uh, is still being uh, worked on. Maybe eventually, eventually they'll, they'll kind of rework the way that it's, it's written so that they can eventually have them uh, printed, off the, printed off the website. Yeah. If this is something that's a little bit more complicated, it's a, a bigger renovation project, uh, typically it's going to go to the architecture committee. Okay. So there are three tiers. There is the staff, there is the architecture committee, and then there is, the, of course, the View Gray Commission. 
So the commission only reviews kind of the most major projects. The vast majority of permits probably go through the architecture committee. Um, so any kind of work like a pool would be a good example of some work that would go to the architecture committee to be reviewed. More significant renovations, of course, additions of things like HVAC, mm-hmm. air conditioning units, especially if they're going to be mounted on a roof or anything like that, that often goes to the architecture committee as well. Okay. So the architecture committee is made up of three architects that are licensed architects uh, with, the, with the AIA, American Institute of Architects, and they're actually nominated by the American Institute of Architects, and the mayor then chooses who is going to sit on the architecture committee. Oh, okay. So the okay. mayor's office chooses, and the AIA... IA nominates options. Okay. So those are all, those are the, the three gentlemen that we currently have that sit on the architecture committee. And that committee meets twice a month. They okay. meet the second and fourth Tuesday of mm-hmm. every month mm-hmm. at 1.30 in their, in the BCC offices every, every so time. So they must have, they had a meeting today then? No, they had, uh, they had a meeting last week. Oh, it was last week. Mm-hmm. Hey. Tomorrow's actually the commission meeting. Okay. I know I saw something was going on this week. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, they, and that's really kind of an interesting thing about the VCC as well. They have the smallest staff of any department in the city, and they have the most public hearings of any department in the city. Yeah. Yeah, that's not surprising they have, Yeah. Because they have two architecture committee meetings a month, and HDLC only has one. Mm-hmm. So HDLC has one architecture committee meeting and one commission meeting every month. VCC has two architecture committee meetings and one commission meeting. So they, they beat, beat out HDLC on that one. Mm-hmm. Lucky for them, <laughs> which means they have public hearings that they have to prepare for three weeks out of four a, a month. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. So it's one of, one of the reasons our, our, our plans examiners especially are, are, are terribly overworked. Mm-hmm. And I say are and we like I guess I used to work there. I mean, <laughs> they're plans examiners. Cause, so I'm still a little bit bad even a year out. I'm still a little bit bad about saying we like I still work there. But I mean, they, they kind of are our plan examiners that's true because they are doing this for our city that we enjoy and that we live in absolutely so we can call them ours we as in you know we as in citizens employ them right yes (laughs) (laughs) so for most kind of getting back to the the mid the mid-size uh projects most of those uh, projects may go to the architecture committee more than once okay some of the smaller things like you know smaller things that h uh, that the architecture committee reviews like h VAC units or things like that may go once. They go back to the the uh, staff. The staff writes the permit. It goes. It moves forward. Things that require architecture drawings that may require a little bit of review, a little bit of tweaking, may go to the architecture committee a couple of, of times before they're approved. Once they're approved, they go back to the staff to write the permit. For bigger projects, especially if it's a major renovation, especially if it's an addition mm-hmm. to a to an existing building or even a new build in in the French Quarter, that um, does have to also be uh, reviewed by the commission. Mm-hmm. Um, along with how big the project is, also the color ratings are coming to as right. a factor. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about that when when uh, when Brooke talked about the, of course, very important now uh, digital library. Yeah. <laughs> Virtual library. Virtual library. Virtual library. Which we love. Digital, yes, the virtual library. So that is much, much, much easier for people, for kind of the general public to view and understand now that it, we have it. You can look it up online. Before, it was really something that you either had to go to the Historic Neurons collection to see, and, there, and they had a copy on their website, or you had to come into the office and we had this like single one drawing that Hillary Irvin had, you know, colored in. 25 years ago right <laughs> <laughs> and that was like the, the one you know copy that we had that we used for reference in in the office so and now today it makes it much easier you can just pull it up on your computer color ratings of course are an important factor in deciding what level of review each project gets as well 
So things that are, you know, blue and purple rated almost automatically have to go to commission regardless of the level, um, unless it's like very basic maintenance. Mm-hmm. So once things go through the architecture committee uh, and then they are uh, kind of approved to move on to the commission, they'll be scheduled for the next commission meeting. Most things that go to commission are kind of already halfway there as far as being approved. Because, of course, the uh, architecture committee also sits on the commission. Mm -hmm. So there are nine members of the commission, three of which are those architects that serve on the architecture committee, and then an additional six members uh, when it's fully staffed up. And so those those six commissioners are very much, you know, lay people intentionally. They're non-architectural people. And they're nominated by various kind of entities throughout the city. So business associations the state museum as well as the louisiana landmark society all make their make a nomination okay and then again the the mayor uh will uh, will choose from those nominations and these are all uh, all of our commissioners and architecture committee uh members are volunteers okay and how how long do they serve for oh i believe it's usually for a four-year term four years wow that's a big commitment it's either yeah two years or four years actually don't quote you know I forget because so many of our commission members have been serving for many, many years. A lot of them do get kind of reassigned to their their position. So I actually don't remember how many years okay. it is before they that they get um, that they serve on 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 a at a given post. So with the commissioners, uh, you know, once a month is not a huge huge commitment. But for the architecture committee members, that's still that's three times a month. Yeah, for usually you know two to three hours on on each meeting so that is quite quite a big time commitment that they put forth for for the vcc yeah especially since they don't get paid for it especially since they don't (laughs) get paid for it now that we kind of know sort of how it how the process works Mm -hmm. when you worked there you were a building inspector what do the building inspectors do Inspect buildings, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And there's two inspectors, There's two now. Um, And this is something that was kind of tragic after Hurricane Katrina. The uh, VCC is, the way it was designed, um, you know, originally was to have nine employees. Okay. And that, at the time, of course, the 1930s included some secretaries, some typists. So, you know, realistically, they should probably have a minimum of really five employees. And five five or six employees, not, not including the director. And so when um, Hurricane Katrina happened, they fired everyone but two, the yeah. director and the architectural historian. So who, the, who were the two longest serving? So that was kind of the logic there, I think, is in, in that regard. Uh, so post-Katrina, they were really working with a truly skeleton uh, staff at the time, of course, when it was most needed. Mm-hmm. And it's really been kind of built back up since then. So since Hurricane Katrina, the staff is really kind of just slowly building back up. So when I came in in 2015, Nick Albrecht, who's a plans examiner, now was kind of the first building inspector since Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. So he really started in 2013, kind of really just building up the whole plans examiner position and starting with kind of from the ground up with new kind of enforcement in the district. So he moved up to plans examiner when I came on and I was the only building inspector for uh, about almost two years, and then they got the funding to hire a, a second building inspector. Okay. So at that time, they're fu- right now they're functioning with uh, two plans examiners, an architectural historian, and two building inspectors. Okay. And of course, the director. That's pretty much probably realistically going to be the full full staff for 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 the time being. They would like to at some point get a, a preservation architect position. Okay. Uh, on staff, so they have at least one more person to do plan review because plan review is kind of a really daunting problem you know for 
just two plans examiners to handle, Mm -hmm. Uh, which sounds, you know, this sounds like a luxurious number of staff members for one historic district, (laughs) considering when the HDLC has, you know, so many more historic districts. But there is such a degree of of control and there are so many projects that are coming up. Um, Most architecture committee meetings have you know, 20 to 25 projects on any at any given meeting. Right. Um, so there's just the sheer number of applications coming in and the amount of work being done in the French Quarter really does require that level of staff. Mm-hmm. But so for, for a building inspector, one thing that they really kind of do initially is, of course, close out permits. A lot of permits are issued by the uh, by the plans examiners, and you will need um, to close out that permit at the completion of your work. Is how things should should go. So once you've completed your work, the plans examiner you, know, you call the plans examiner me, you call the building inspector, and schedule an, uh, an inspection. They'll come out and look at the work, make sure it's been done properly. If that's the case, they will close close the permit, and we can all you know move on. For big projects, oftentimes as well, they will schedule inter- intermittent inspections to make sure that the, the work is being done properly, right. especially that you're not damaging historic material. If historic material has to be removed, that's properly stored so that it doesn't get damaged in the process for renovation, things like that. So for big projects, you see them kind of out, kind of working on, on the site pretty regularly. The other element that goes along with being a building inspector, of course, is compliance. So compliance has to do, of course, with kind of the not-so-nice side of uh, what a building inspector does. So they're out in the French Quarter every day. They're really the boots on the ground when they're checking for work without permit, which is a big, which is a big problem oftentimes in the French Quarter. People simply do not know what they can and can't do without a permit. So there's quite a bit of work that happens simply because they are, people are, are not aware that they require a permit to do this work mm-hmm. so they'll have they'll intervene with that oftentimes they can issue a stop work order mm-hmm. so that they can stop the work until a permit is issued um uh, in most cases that kind of resolves the issue if they do issue a stop work order and a permit is never issued then that that becomes a violation case mm-hmm. so with violation cases then a letter is sent usually it's legally required to be sent to the owner of the property but building inspectors try to send them also, especially to tenants, especially if it's a business in the French Quarter, because the vast majority of leases in the French Quarter require tenants to uh, maintain the building. Oh, okay. So that's kind of a, a steep, you know, tenant tenant agreement, but it's right. fairly common in the French Quarter. So a lot of what the VCC deals with when they're dealing with people who are trying to get buildings into compliance are usually the tenant, not the owner. And since they've had a full-time inspector for a few years and now two inspectors, compliance has become kind of a much bigger force. For many years, it was kind of pick your battles, triage kind of situation and dealing with the worst offenders. Uh, Now that they're fully staffed with building inspectors, they do regular rotations of inspections. So they actually put out a map and they walk the, the streets block by block and they look at every building in the French Quarter and if it need and if they find issues that building they will open up a violation case they will send out a letter to the owner kind of just listing those uh, violations some things are referred to as work without permit which means they may have done work at some point without a permit that's not appropriate or the more common violation would be D by N or demolition by neglect mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a very scary term <laughs> that mm-hmm. we use in a preservation a lot which usually most frequently just just really means deferred maintenance right so in many cases we're talking about paint that needs to be you know done maybe you have peeling paint or you have a little bit of rot in your in your deck boards on your gallery a little bit of vegetation growing out of your brick wall these are all things that are fairly minor when they get to them you know when they when they cite them in hopes that 
you will, you know, do this work and that these don't become bigger problems. Right. So for a lot of people, especially residents, you know, who own properties in the French Quarter, this can be a very scary thing to receive a violation letter. And this, you know, all the scary wording, and it actually includes a bit about fines and imprisonment. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't, you can't, they can't, I think, technically, you know, send you to prison for uh, not addressing your violation. So I'm confident that has never happened. Uh, but it is included in the letter in order to kind of get people to notice and respond to these to these letters that are sent out. Um, so once people get receive the letter, they're Usually they're certified, so they make sure that you receive them. Then a lot of people will kind of call up their plans, uh, their building inspector that's listed on the letter, and kind of work with them to open to uh, open an application, start start the permitting process, and get those violations resolved. For some of our more um, difficult properties in the French Quarter, a lot of times the violation letter isn't acknowledged; it's ignored, or or it, maybe they started the application process and never finished it. Mm-hmm. So that would then be defer, referred to adjudication. So the next step is usually adjudication in which you would take that case, put it on an adjudication docket, and adjudications are run by the one stop. So on a given adjudication hearing, there may be violation cases for HDLC, VCC, safety and permits, quite a lot of them for short-term rental. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all that's happening at the same time with the same adjudication coordinator and hearing officer. So that all kind of happens at the same time. But that is the opportunity for the VCC to levy fines. Yeah. So this is where the city comes in and says, you know, you're, you're, you're being fined for not maintaining your property. Mm-hmm. So uh, once the hearing occurs, of course, or once the hearing is set, they will send out a letter with a time and a date um, that you have to show up. If no one shows up, there is an automatic fine. So okay. there's definitely a benefit to paying attention yeah. to that. So w- with that system, this is how the kind of the VCC has the opportunity to kind of get compliance in the district. Okay. So that's a, a lot. Building inspectors spend a lot of time in violation cases. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can imagine. <laughs> how have you been able to take this experience that the work that you did with the VCC and use it in your current role as, as an independent consultant? Well, the job is, is sorry to say, a little practically identical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Except now you're working for people individually. Right. So now I'm kind of the other side of that in that a lot of my clients are property owners in the French Quarter and other historic districts. Some of my repeat clients own multiple properties in various districts. And so, you know, just keeping up with those properties, especially so many of them are generational ownership. Mm-hmm. So maybe grandpa didn't do such a good job of maintaining a lot of these buildings. And now those problems are coming home to roost. So now we have to deal with kind of big violation issues with all of their properties kind of simultaneously and it's just a lot for them to handle in many cases so with that I kind of help them kind of organize and take over the process of addressing each violation for each property individually so it kind of um, usually starts with me receiving a phone call or an email from one of my clients that says oh we got a violation letter or we got a hearing notice hopefully Mm -hmm. the violation letter before the hearing notice but that doesn't always happen um sometimes it takes the hearing notice for them to kind of stand up and pay attention um so i'll get the uh the copy of the violation letter i'll go through each item individually uh, with them oftentimes kind of talking about each individual violation and what that really means and what part of the building they're talking about because though the vcc tries very hard to kind of give detailed descriptions of 
each different violation. Sometimes it kind of goes over people's head as far as what are we actually talking about. So sometimes that's a phone conversation. Sometimes that's an in-person conversation because sometimes it's beneficial just to look at the building and point at it. And people generally understand a lot better in those situations. So I did that same thing as a building inspector with people. Uh, now just this time, now at this point, I kind of do that process and then I take the application and I move forward with it. So instead of explaining to the owner how they can move forward now that they've got this violation letter, I will take that information. I will make the application. Uh, I will include any kind of attachment information that they may need as well. So if there's if a plan, if a plan is required or what I call a, com- a compliance report. Mm-hmm. Um, so I cr- oftentimes create a compliance report, which is kind of a step down from architectural drawings. Okay. So that may require a very basic plan or even oftentimes just a lot of pictures that are then key to the to different parts of the violation. So that we can kind of say, we can all look at the same picture and say, okay, this is what we're talking about. We're going to circle it here. We're going to draw a line there. And then we're going to do... B, we're going to, so this A is the problem and now we're going to do B to address it. So those compliance plans are usually attached to the application and then uh, that is sent to the plans examiner. So I kind of feel like my job is to kind of make sure that the owner is comfortable with the situation and understands what's happening and then also do whatever I can to I kind of ease the burden of the staff at the BCC as well and the HDC, HDLC as well. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to give them kind of a, an easy to, to review, uh, straightforward explanation of what, what what work needs to be done and how it's going to be done so that they can look at it, they can write a permit quickly and, you know, get it out. So it, helps, it saves them time and hopefully means I get a permit sooner. <laughs> okay. So hopefully that, that benefits my clients as far as they get things moving along as quickly as possible. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you kind of you kind of started to to talk about my next like set of questions okay. a mm-hmm. little bit there because I was going to ask you about your consulting business and again it's called Gates Preservation mm-hmm. and you specialize in permitting and regulatory regulatory compliance in historic districts. So you've already talked a little bit about the permitting, mm-hmm. how you help people with that, but you also do other project management things, you do advocacy and and other just general preservation research and other stuff like that so can you talk a little bit about maybe some of those other things that you do Mm -hmm. as well so yeah I feel like I probably explained permitting pretty well project management comes a little bit kind of uh, as part of that permitting process because I'm usually the one the the kind of spearhead for the permit that also might mean that my uh, my client needs an architect or a, a contractor so oftentimes I'm kind of facilitating the bringing together of those different entities to kind of make this go forward. Uh, some of my clients that have several businesses in the fr- businesses in the French Quarter have kind of a handyman on staff, mm-hmm. so they the, 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 so I kind of have a relationship usually with that hand, with a handyman that can, and I kind of make sure that they understand what work needs to be done. Because also, especially with you know, not every contractor, not every handyman. Um, kind of understands exactly how the work should be done correctly in order right. to meet VCC guidelines. So that really kind of is an important element to make sure that, that we're doing the work properly. So what's, what's the point of the permit if the permit never gets closed out because the work didn't get done properly? Right. So project management comes a little bit more in just kind of the facilitating of the, of the group as a whole. Advocacy, advocacy really comes in largely when I have to sit before governmental agencies. So, of course, the View Cray Commission uh, and the Architecture Committee, but also uh, the City Planning Commission and then as well uh, adjudication hearings. So I, I attend all manner of uh, public hearings <laughs> throughout the month, uh, kind of making sure that I can represent my clients because so many of my clients simply 
can't give the time, especially adjudication hearings and city planning commission meetings. These are hours out of your yeah, day. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've got a day job, yeah. you can't always go down and, and be there. Right. Uh, you know, just the way that they, the way things function, you can spend several hours just waiting for your item to be heard mm-hmm. uh, at a at a commission meeting. So that's something that I can do for them, um, and just kind of you know wait it out, which is which is always a fun part of my job. Yeah. <laughs> I I have books on my on my iPad, and I find ways yeah. to entertain myself. But uh, so that's really a lot of what my advocacy work is is simply you know being there when when my clients can't be for the long periods of time that that public hearings often take. Mm-hmm. And the general preservation work I, kind of comes in a few different forms. I have a couple of clients, uh, regular clients, that like to get property reports. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, and that kind of means it's similar to kind of what the VCC cr- has created over the years of information on the property. So I'll usually do a public records request um, with the VCC and pull pictures and documentation. I have to do less and less of that now that it's uh, on the... Uh, uh, in the virtual library. On the virtual library. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of the pictures that I used to pull by hand from the VCC actually can, I can look up on the on the virtual library. Um, but a lot of other documentations, what's been permitted before, of course, Sanborn maps, newspaper research, kind of that kind of standard preservation research. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll often do for a lot of clients and kind of put that all in a packet together. Um, so that's usually very helpful, especially for clients that kind of had had a property for a long period of time and maybe don't remember when exactly certain renovations were done or where certain permits were, were gotten. So I'll kind of go through the history of that property and its interactions with the, with the VCC or the HDLC and kind of pull that all up into one report for them. Uh, so I have a couple clients that kind of request those on, on a regular basis just, and, they, and their goal really is to just have one for every property so they can pull it up and see all the information that I've provided to them mm-hmm. regarding the history of that property. Okay. Okay. So can you walk us through a, what a typical project might be for you? And it can just be, you know, it doesn't have to be one, you know, you don't have to give us like specific details, you know, I know you have client, like pri- client privacy, yeah. you know what I mean? But <laughs> just kind of, kind of like maybe... I don't know, something somebody might ask you and then, like you were saying, what you might charge mm-hmm. um, and, and how that the whole process kind of works. So I have a couple of I have some some new clients that pop up every once in a while, but I have a really great basis of reoccurring clients. Um, so most of them are kind of familiar with, with uh, you know, how it works and, and, and what I charge. But when I'm talking to, a, to a, a new client, a lot of my clients come referred either uh, from lawyers that I work with or contractors some other you know some other property owners in the French Quarter of course have kind of referred people to me and and one of the things that I think at least a lot of property owners prefer is that I work hourly mm-hmm. um, I think it's a little it's a little easier for them kind of just to understand and it, it makes everything a little bit easier for me when it comes to invoicing you know and I usually uh, have, a, have a couple different rates depending on who I'm working with but they're kind of you know minor adjustments in my in my in my rate scale and so i'm really just billing hourly very simple invoices for each of my clients and then of course i can bill them every month that you know my recurring clients are expecting that bill and and it's been really beneficial for me because i work a lot with especially lawyers mm-hmm. uh so when i come in usually oftentimes it's a lawyer that's that's um recommending that i do this work on their behalf okay so they may have a client may have called their their standard their standard lawyer or they, they go to a lawyer who's um worked a lot in uh, city compliance and they're like okay well you'll need 
this license or this permit. Let me call in Erica and she'll help you with that process. Because of course, I am a lot more appealing in a uh, billing uh, in, a, in a billing cycle to a, a lawyer. I will always be cheaper than a, than a lawyer's fee. So right. that in this kind of work has been, I think, a lot more advantage in that regard because I always look better compared to what they're currently paying for. Mm-hmm. Um, that was definitely not the case in tax credit work in which you're kind of just putting forth a number, especially usually a big number kind of up front rather rather than kind of the, the bill by hour. And I can usually give you a pretty good estimate on the number of hours it will take. But a lot a lot of my clients, I guess in, in the benefit to this type of work is a lot of my clients, you know, like I said, they're 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 I'm, they're spending a, a small percentage on me compared to the lawyer that they typically hire to deal with this. They really don't have big issues with with what I with what I charge, so that has been nice. Um, that's something I just kind of started to learn as I as I started doing this. But billing is kind of a, a really important thing, and I've talked to a lot of the architects that I work with, as well as a lot of the lawyers that I work with, to kind of determine what what I will set my my fee as. And I actually ended up, you know, after talking to some of the lawyers that that have worked in compliance and, and city regulation for many years, it may start out a little bit lower and then you might work up as your client base really gets solid and and kind of frequent reoccurring clients, then you may start start to work up a little bit. So I actually started at a much higher number than I ended up kind of billing on a regular basis. Okay. I know that's a question that people have sometimes. I see that a lot in, in on the professional Facebook mm-hmm. group, people asking like, how do I determine what I'm supposed to be charging for these projects or like, do I do it this way or do I do it up front? And I know, I think that that, that that's definitely something that I, I wouldn't even know where to begin if that's uh-huh. what I was trying to do. Like, I don't know. I mean, cause you don't want to undersell yourself, yeah. but at the same time, you don't want people to go, holy crap, that's a lot of money and mm-hmm. then not use your services. So yeah. And it's hard when you're, especially when you're dealing with individual property owners, residential property owners versus versus business owners Mm because they're going to have a fully, you know, completely different understanding of what costs them money. And so many, I guess, business owners, especially people who own multiple businesses would much rather throw a little money at it and make the problem go away kind of situation. So those type of clients tend to be much less difficult when it comes to to billing than you might deal with. But really look, depending on your background, like I have an architecture degree, I'm not licensed, but I do have a lot of the same skill set as an architect. So I do look a little bit at what so an architect with similar skill set may maybe maybe billing, and then you gotta also look at your overhead. Mm-hmm. I have very little overhead, so that makes right. me a little bit more competitive. I don't have I I work out of my home or on my iPad pretty, pretty much the entire my entire week. So I'm usually in city hall or I'm about in in the French Quarter or I'm working in my office at home. So kind of factoring in that amount of overhead too kind of makes a a, a big difference. So that makes that tends to make a lot of independent. Uh, consultants a little bit more competitive than maybe a architecture firm or a mm-hmm. similar counterpart that may have a lot more overhead. Because I think about the, those kind of expenses as well when you're looking thinking about billing. So it's not, it is about your time. And, you know, it kind of started when I was doing it as well, I was looking for something that I could do more part-time because I have a child, more flexible hours. Mm-hmm. So I looked at what I was making at, at City Hall I doubled it. <laughs> wow. Yes, I doubled it, um, basically. And, well, you know, you don't the, – the staff at City Hall, especially the VCC and the HELC, are, of course, greatly overeducated for how much they get paid. 
I think everybody in the preservation field. Oh, is, absolutely! Is Lots of people in that are great. Same boat. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so that's really where I started. It, it started at is like I want to be able to make. Uh, the goal was to make the same amount of money and work less. Mm-hmm. And that's worked out in my first year with taxes and everything. I think that's worked out really well. Um, so I kind of start with that that billing number, and then you you know, have to chip a little bit off the top for expenses and overhead and all of that. But that's really kind of worked out well for the amount of time I wanted to spend doing this job mm-hmm. and the outcome. So mm-hmm. I factored that in too as well. That sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of things to think about for sure. It's it's a difficult number, and and my yeah my biggest recommendation when it comes to billing is consult the people you work with, and a lot of people you know once you you know you, if you approach them you know, kind of honestly and straightforward, a lot of people will, will be very honest with what they bill mm-hmm. and and how they come about that number. Uh, lawyers especially are, I have I know a couple of lawyers that are very straightforward with, yeah. <laughs> with what they bill and why they do that and all of that. Some people may not be, you know, so open about that information, but it's one of those things I, you know, I'm a big, you know, fan of, we should all be more open about, about how much we make and how much we bill and why and, and what that, how that affects our life. Yeah. Because that's really, I think, you know, where, where our quality of life comes into play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I think I'd like to uh, maybe skip ahead mm-hmm. to talk about the, the other job that you do. Um, you're also a licensed tour guide, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. What what kind of things do you do in that role? And, and why do you do that and end preservation? Well, I started doing it. So I was coming off my historic tax credit work. And I was looking for something, uh, something else that kind of really used used my um, my skill set. Mm-hmm. And a family acquaintance was actually starting a tour company and looking for an expert in New Orleans history and architecture. I just came out of the MPS program. I can spout facts about you know New yeah. Orleans architecture all day long. Yeah. And so you know, and particularly for the Garden District, that was a niche that they needed filled. And I actually live in the Garden District, just just kind of on the edge of the Garden District, right off of Magazine Street. And so you know, the the benefit, of course, is it's a neighborhood I love. The benefit to the company is they can say, "Oh, my tour guide lives in the Garden District." How right. many how many people can say that? Yeah. So it's just kind of a, a happenstance that I you know have this this little double shotgun house kind of right on the edge of the Garden District, so it's not you know these big houses that we go tour at all the time. But of course, it also made it great a great commute because usually I would walk a couple of blocks, meet up my, meet up with my tour, take them around the neighborhood and be done. Yeah. <laughs> so it has it had a great uh, benefit, you know, just kind of the amount of time that I, that I would, I would spend doing it. And I got to pay and I got paid to talk about architecture. Mm-hmm. So it definitely was, was very appealing kind of coming off of the tax credit work, which kind of just, just the work and the, the clients that I had at the time kind of get, I got a little burned out. Um, so this was a little bit more fun, a little bit more light. And, you know, it gave me another opportunity to educate, which is kind of something that kind of keeps coming up in my, my preservation profession is I love to talk to people about their buildings. I love to educate people in their buildings. So many people, and of course, almost everyone in New Orleans has a historic building because right. they're all around us. <laughs> uh, almost everyone lives in a historic building. So yeah. there are so many things that, you know, you can talk about with someone in, in their building. And it always surprises me a little bit how little people know mm-hmm. about historic architecture. But, and um, I'll have a, a lot of friends and uh, a good friend of mine that's a realtor, and she calls it that voodoo that you do. When, <laughs> I, when you walk, when I walk into a building, I'm like, oh, so yours was built in ninth, the 1920s, and you have this, you know, the picture rails, so you yeah. have plaster walls, and you, and you kind of go on and on, and people are like, how did you know that? Yeah. 
do you touch everything too? Mm -hmm. Because I touch everything. Oh, everything. Let me see what this wall is made of. Well, that's how you know, you know, is this plaster or is this drywall? I mean, you know, the first thing you do is you touch it. So, you know, that's something that I think mystifies people a little bit about people who have preservation degrees is because that's, you know, it, it's the built environment around you. So, you, you know, it's, it's a fun party trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing tours. I got licensed, of course, because you do have to have a, a, a tour guide's license here in New Orleans. And mm-hmm. that is uh, governed by taxicab. Okay. So that's a taxicab department uh, licensure. And uh, so you can go to one stop for that now. <laughs> Back in the day when I got mine, they didn't have the one stops. So you had to go like the scary corner of City <laughs> Hall. But now it's in the one stop. Makes it much easier. That also is, it does require a test. Okay. Um, so you do take a history test. Oh. So if you're a licensed architect, there is at least some reassurance that you know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's also a background check and I think a drug test. I've taken one in a while, but yeah. So okay. it's, it's, yeah, they don't let just anybody be a tour guide, actually. It's, yeah. it's, it's a somewhat strenuous uh, licensing process for something like that. And we're one of very few number of cities in, in the United States that requires a tour guide's license. So it's kind of a little bit unique to that. But so took the test of course having come just off my uh graduating from the mps program it was laughably easy yeah <laughs> I, you know i even i even argued the the accuracy of some of the questions <laughs> with the with the with the girl who, who gave the test and she's like ah, i don't know I'm like i think this is wrong or at least out of date that's so typical you know <laughs> So I answered it correctly because I knew what they were trying to say, but I actually think you're wrong about this question. It's not quite right. Yeah. Uh, so they did not find that amusing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so th- I, I, I did that really until I got my job with the VCC. And then I really just, I didn't have the time or the energy kind of to kind of do it. Uh, I did a few tours over the couple of years that, that I worked at the VCC, but I kept my, my license active. Uh, and then when I, I left the VCC, and of course, my main focus when I when I left the VCC, because I, I loved working there. I love the staff. It's a great group of people. But I was looking for a little bit more flexible life. I have a nearly two-year-old little boy. So um, it was just the nine to five was just kind of graining on me. Mm-hmm. And when you work for the city there, I mean, I felt, little, felt like a little bit of a cop out because it's probably one of the easier our commitments of a lot of like a lot of jobs if you went if you went to the private sector likely you're going to be you know have a higher demand of time than if you than if you worked the city so I knew I didn't want to just switch from civil service to another employment that I really kind of needed to make my own hours so I was you know fortunate in that my husband has a good job with good health insurance and so I kind of said well I'm I'm going to go back to consulting and but I have this great background in the permitting process and some great connections and I can just kind of put that together and um and make a make a profession but of course being a consultant is a variable job as well so the income varies uh you know month to month but being you know having kind of a, a little insert of, of of cash from being a tour guide I know I've got maybe you know I've already scheduled for two tours a week I know when they are They've already got them scheduled around all of my public hearings and everything. Yeah. Um, I have a great uh, friend that I worked with prior to going, uh, leaving for the VCC that now is the tour uh, manager at Gray Line. And so I've just called him up and said, I want to do a couple of tours every week. And so along with kind of being a nice, you know, a, a secondary steady income that I know it's coming, tips are great. Yeah. <laughs> little, little cash is always nice. Yeah. And then um, along with that, I get this great, I really enjoy doing it. I get this great experience of these, you know, kind of naive people. They don't know that much about architecture (laughs) or New Orleans, but they think everything is new and wonderful. And 
when you, you know, maybe on a rough day when I had to deal with the obstacle course of uh, bureaucracy. <laughs> and then I can go, you know, from that to giving a tour about the wonderful architecture of the Garden District. And people are like, and you get to, you know, see New Orleans from, from new eyes, yeah. fresh perspective. So it's kind of nice for me every once in a while, too, to kind of revisit why I do what I do. And, and the people who go on these tours are kind of a ready source for that as well. That's really cool. I thought about doing that, too, but... This is not. I don't like talking in front of people, <laughs> and and that's something not that great at it. <laughs> um, that's a skill set I developed. I'm actually an extremely introverted person. My husband and I both are very, you know, introverted people. Until you get him on a subject that he that he cares about. Yeah, yeah. my husband's like that. Too. Same way. Ask um, him about boats or math. Mm-hmm. Ask my then, husband about yeah. a fountain pen, and <laughs> he will yeah, he will ch- he will talk your ear off. Yeah. But I, even lots of people I talk to at parties for the historic Orleans collection are like, he never talks. I'm like, you haven't gotten him on the right subject. <laughs> so for people, you know, like I said, I'm a very introverted person. It was a lot of effort to kind of learn to speak out and speak up, and and but you know, you kind of practice what you're going to talk about. That's an advantage of. Uh, of of giving tours is that you know it's kind of your public speaking that you get to practice over and over Mm -hmm. (laughs) so maybe this maybe today wasn't so good but then the the tour to you know the next day was better and you know you're kind of rehearsing the same thing a little bit over and over too so that really kind of gives you confidence about what you're going to talk about kind of how how to speak better because uh, because you know you you know what it is and you and I think it of course you know the passion of of loving architecture and right is also very helpful but I've also learned in the process, I've given recently for Grayline a few bus tours where you don't get the advantage of stopping mm. and pointing yeah. and talking about the thing in, in behind you um, while everyone looks at it. So you have to actually like think about timing and what you're going to hit. And so that's a whole new skill set that I learned mm-hmm. <laughs> in doing those tours because, you know, you, you have to, it's a completely different set of skills in that timing versus being able to stop and talk for as long as you want and then move on. Yeah. So yeah. it's a constantly developing, you know, kind of skills that I learn from being a tour guide. And and some of them are surprising and some of them are kind of obvious. Like, you know, I'm better at public speaking. Well, that's mm-hmm. shocking. Uh, <laughs> okay. But cool. Yeah. I think more preservationists should be should be tour guides because I yeah. think it's something that's everyone should have in their back pocket when you live in New Orleans because yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of – when I, I – when I worked at the Peton house, I had, I had to do it a little bit cause it was just kind of required. You know, if I was the only person there, I did that too. I had to give the tours. Did everybody work at the Peton house? Everybody did. did. Everybody did. <laughs> I think Back so. Back when Susan, yeah, sure. Yeah. When Susan was there. Susan was there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I did that too. I had to learn the tour. I don't think I ever gave one. I maybe gave one. Oh, I did them all the time. Oh, I never had to do them. There were so many times when I was the only person there mm-hmm. because Susan would be off flitting around doing whatever. <laughs> and then that was when Tara was the assistant. And mm-hmm. I think Tara only worked, she may have been working. I don't think she was working full time. I think she was working part time. Uh huh. When she was the assistant yeah. director or whatever they yeah. called her. Um, and then she became the director for a brief period of time, and then she, she sanely quit. <laughs> yeah, but there were there were many days when I was the only person there, mm-hmm. like as as an unpaid intern, yeah, like managing this whole house museum. Like, okay, I'm not sure it's a bright idea that was, but uh, sure. <laughs> I think I had a slight advantage in that. I I think we had a group of of I think three 
interns at the same time just that oh, year. Oh, yeah. No, it was Because we did a couple of big me. projects. Yeah, no, we did a couple of yeah. big projects a year. So we had three or four interns. So we were never really alone. And I think I maybe gave a tour once and it was horrible. Yeah. Like that was pre-tour guide, pre-kind of falling on my face and getting back up several times before I really became good at pointing and talking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like being a comedian. You have to go out there and bomb a few times. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So... It's time for my favorite part of the interview, because this is my favorite thing to ask people. What is your favorite thing about preservation? I think I really like, it's almost the anthropological nature of it, Mm -hmm. like the interaction with people in their built environment, you know, how that kind of, how buildings develop because of their climate and because the way people live, and then how those buildings also are adapted and change as people change. And does, you know, does the building you live in change your habits or do you change the building to meet your, to meet your needs? There's a mm-hmm. lot of that kind of give and take with a building. And, you know, you're a steward of these historic buildings. And I tell people this all the time, you know, you are a steward, you're one brief period of time in this house's very long life. Right. So like that kind of element of that development over decades and centuries that, that, you know, houses and cities kind of how they develop is really kind of my favorite part about preservation. And that's kind of a big concept thing that's a little bit hard to wrap your brain around sometimes. And sometimes I enjoy that about it. Sometimes I also enjoy the really little elements of each little detail in in a historic home as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like little details too. Mm -hmm. That's, I I have a tendency to poke around and be like, hey, look at that door jam. So, you know, as I briefly mentioned at the beginning, my husband and I love to do estate sales. Mm-hmm. That is the other great advantage of estate <laughs> Yes. Sales. I have been in yes. hundreds of homes in this city every weekend of, uh, you, know, you know, of every week because we do this. And mm-hmm. some of them are, you know, suburban houses out in Metairie, and those are interesting sometimes, too. And a lot of them are here in Uptown or, or in, you know, the Bywater. And so I've, you know, I, the stuff in the house is great, but... 80% of why in there probably, depending on how good the stuff is, 80% of why in there is probably to see the house <laughs> see and the all house. the little details that I think are cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I can share with my husband and he'd be like, yeah, that's cool. Like, you know, he, he may not get as excited as I do, but he, of course, being, you know, in that field as well, kind of at least appreciates it with me. And there's some elements like, you know, he can find a uh, built-in radio in a wall from like a 1950s house that gets all yeah. excited. So, yeah. You know. I love to that each stuff his own too. Yeah. all the little kind of <laughs> cool aspects of of historic homes so that you know even if you don't really you know like estate sales go late in the day go see the house yeah <laughs> yeah well I had I had Jennifer Hance on mm-hmm. uh, the podcast and she's you know she has the the popular Instagram the oh, preservationist yes. yeah and that's what she does she mm-hmm. goes to like open houses and oh, stuff yeah, I think I heard that too yeah to, to get you know to see what things are like on the inside and get those those sort of detail pictures that mm-hmm. she's her you know mm-hmm. her Insta- instagram's kind of famous it's, for so it's a good idea yeah although she you know she doesn't work no uh-huh yeah she's so, a stay-at-home mom I she's think. a yeah. stay-at-home mom yeah so she she can do those sorts of things mm-hmm. like you know in the middle of the day right kind of right stuff, so so the, yeah, the great things about estate sales versus open houses is not every house that goes to the market has an open house, but a lot of the really fancy houses have estate sales, mm-hmm. and so you get to see it even before it might go on the market. Right. So that's yeah. my that's my little secret <laughs> that I just shared with everyone. <laughs> on the other side of that coin, mm-hmm. what what's your least favorite thing, and do you have any preservation pet peeves? Um, well, my least favorite thing, I think it might be a little tacky to say, uh, is good intentions. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it seems, you know, so so many things go wrong 
with historic buildings, especially because of good intentions. And you know, it's like it's like it's like watching HGTV and the horror show that, that occurs there because you know this woman's walking in here with the best intentions for this house that she loves, mm-hmm. and she just rips out the floor because she doesn't think she can fix it. Yeah. Um, and some contractors are part are part of the problem as well. But you know, mm-hmm. it's so and so many people ask me, you know, when you come back and you're talking about a renovation, and people are like, why did they do this? Mm-hmm. My answer is always, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Right. <laughs> Yeah. That's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, though. And, yeah. I mean, we have some things in, uh, weird things in this apartment that mm-hmm. are like that. Like, they've widened this door over here, and they added a piece of wood. They, like, cut the they cut the uh, molding off the side. Oh, yes. And they added a piece of wood mm-hmm. to the side of the door. I, I assume, because it's very hard to move, knowing from personal experience, uh-huh. it is very hard to get large furniture into this up, apartment. Up these, uh-huh. Up the I stairs. Had one of those. And basically a 90 degree corner turn here at the top of the stairs. And so they widen this this door. And it's bizarre mm-hmm. looking. Mm-hmm. It really is. I understand why they did it, but it's like, come on. <laughs> and no of course, way. you didn't do it well. There's a right. right way to do this, and there's a wrong way to oh, do yeah. this. Yeah, no, there's a piece. Instead of instead of attempting to shape like the, the molding that they cut out, they just like glued a two by four mm-hmm. there instead. And I'm like, and everything in this apartment, all the stuff, all the molding is rounded. Mm-hmm. So it sticks out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, to, and among other things, but that, that's like the one that's like really easy to see. So I, I understand what you're saying. I, I had a similar, I, really do. I had a similar problem. I had an apartment in grad school. They, these stairs turned 90 degrees three times. Oh my God. It was this, this great little, you know, uh, camelback. Uh-huh. In the back of, of uh, my sister had a friend that had a uh, had a camelback she wasn't using in her house, um, so I got to stay there during grad school, and I'm so appreciative of that. But yeah, you couldn't get a couch <laughs> or a queen size mattress up the stairs. Oh my god! So everything when I moved uh, from Austin to this apartment, I had to think about every single item that I put up put up put up there, and I had and I ended up having to get like this weird. Uh, like Victorian couch mm-hmm. that I bought off Craigslist because it was the only thing that was going to fit up the stairs. Yeah, yeah. So it's these little things. <laughs> Ooh, it's like that episode of Friends oh, with yeah. the couch. Pivot. Absolutely. <laughs> but this, you know, that couch was huge. I can't even get a regular size mattress up the stairs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Um, welcome to living in New Orleans. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> uh, that and having your washing machine outside. Oh yes. Uh. That's a whole nother monster. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for someone looking to get into preservation? Um, y'all have, you know, you, uh, previous interviews, of the, 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 even the, the small number that I've, I've listened to have had some really great advice. So one of the things I really like that I actually heard when you talked uh, with the interview with, with James, is it Rolf? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. James Rolf with the, with the school district. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't know that job existed, so I learned yeah. something. That was a really <laughs> fun one for me. But y'all had a really great conversation about kind of the importance of making connections mm-hmm. and uh, in the field and, and how the podcast has really kind of helped you step up and out um, in social situations. And, you know, I know from experience because you did the same thing to yeah. me. <laughs> we were at a VCCF, a View Create Commission Foundation event. And, you know, that's that's how we met. And I'm like, oh, yes. I was so excited, of course, because <laughs> I, I listened to the podcast. So it was a great little kind of nerdy moment for me. But whatever it is that can make you kind of get out there and 
go to, especially nonprofit groups, the, the View Cray Commission Foundation, VC Pora, all these you know acronyms that we talk about. Um, these groups are you know the heart and soul of the preservation community. Find something in the preservation in you know in the niche. There's so many great niches in preservation that you love. Find a cause, find a group that supports it, volunteer, and really kind of get involved in the community because so much of this, especially in New Orleans, but I'm sure it's, a pr- it's true in a lot of other cities that, you know, it's connections, it's putting people together to make things happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when, once you're in the know in various groups, a lot of people, and, you know, people, people say it all the time, I had this internship or I volunteered for this group. And so, you know, then, then a job opened up or they created a new position and it's those people especially the people that are already kind of known to the to the community and to or to the entity and and you already know you have a good uh, rapport with them they're a good team member those are the people who typically get hired Mm -hmm. like you may have the same background the same mps degree as you know 15 other people in town but you're you know you're there and we know you have a you have a good rapport with the with the team because preservation is a team sport yep (laughs) That's true. It is it, it is such a, a true statement. It's this team sport, and you, you got to play well with your teammates mm-hmm. in order to make it happen. Um, so that's I think really what I would what I would suggest: I'd become a become a team, become a member of a team. Yeah, pick pick, uh, pick something in preservation and, and run with it. Mm-hmm. How can our listeners get in touch with you? I had you have a website, of course. It's uh, gatespreservation.com. Uh, and that's got all of my contact information, email, phone number, all of that. So that's going to be my what I recommend anybody uh, go to if they if they want to contact me. Also, I do Facebook. I don't really have like a Gates Preservation social media presence particularly. I do kind of a hashtag every once in a while, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole of putting too much time into into social media. So uh, I do have an Instagram. Um, it's uh, it's just my personal Instagram. It's uh, Erica underscore K underscore gates and so that's a great place if you want to see you know wonderful professionally done photos of my house from the weird homes tour or some of sneak peeks of some of my projects um i'll include them on instagram pictures of my adorable two-year-old those are on there as well <laughs> uh also oh uh our our bead box that's an that's a fun thing that we post about on our on, on my instagram which is you know uh, a recycling project that we're doing in the garden district mm-hmm. uh, where we kind of put beads out in the street for tourists to take. <laughs> Mardi <laughs> so, Gras beads. Mardi Gras beads. Yes. Yeah. Excuse me. Let me specify Mardi Gras beads for those who may not be familiar with that tradition <laughs> in New Orleans. Uh, so lots, lots of stuff, kind of various aspects of my life and our kind of creative endeavors go on Instagram as well. But okay. professionally, of course, Gates Preservation is, is dot com is the place to go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll put, all, I'll put that on the website mm-hmm. too. So people can link through if they, if they want to do it that way too. All right. I think that's all I have for you today. Okay. I think we've gotten to the bottom of the question. (laughs) Thank you very much for being a guest on the show today, Erica. That was great. Thank you so much. Sure. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guest's information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. 
Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination. <music>